because people respect what you inspect and inspecting the campaigns and iterating on it and seeing the success across different channels is what's going to make you a much more disciplined company with a better cost of acquisition. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armin will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hi, I would like to welcome Daniel Sachs to this episode of our podcast at SaaScale. Daniel is president and co-founder at AppDirect. Hi, Daniel. Welcome. Hi, Armand. Great to be here. So if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and also AppDirect and what you guys do and the problems you are solving. Yeah, fantastic. So I grew up in Niagara region near uh, Niagara Falls, Canada, and my family actually had a furniture store that was started by my great-great-grandparents in 1908. So I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family, going into that retail store, brick-and-mortar environment, selling furniture at a young age, and really experiencing what entrepreneurship is like. And in 2009, just as I was graduating, the Great Recession hit. And just after 100 years in business, we had to shut down the store. And that experience really marked me, realizing that you know, individuals get so much pride from being a part of an entrepreneurial pursuit or having their own business. And when the recession hit, the future of entrepreneurship looked bleak and many other businesses on Main Street along with my family's business went under. And at the time, I had visited San Francisco where my now co-founder lived and it was at the infancy of cloud and SaaS. So on one hand, we had this great recession impacting businesses around the world. The other hand, you had these new entrepreneurial innovative companies that were delivering technologies that could allow smaller businesses to compete with larger businesses through access to technology. And that really spurred the idea for AppDirect, which was the concept of how do you enable businesses to have access to the business tools and technologies and capital that are going to allow them to compete and thrive in a digital world. Wow, this is fascinating story that one thing leads to the other thing that is totally unexpected, right? So at the time that it happened over there in Canada, you never thought that then it may actually lead to a greater kind of thing on your in your life that you are going to be in San Francisco and start a starting company that is greatly successful now. What was the idea behind AppDirect when you started? When we initially started, the idea from AppDirect was all about helping entrepreneurs. And we brainstormed in a room for about six months before we ended up you know, really launching the business. And really the problem we were trying to solve is that of how do we help businesses be more productive through access to technology and ultimately to compete and thrive in a digital world. 
And that's been really the genesis of our business and vision that's driven us for over a decade. So we defined our vision as making business technology universally accessible so anyone can thrive in the digital economy. And the concept of that accessibility meant how do you create a harmony in the way businesses find, buy, and manage technology. And what we realized is that the experience of a B2B or business-to-business buying was antiquated. It was done very offline. A lot of manual support and implementation was required. There was no centralized place to discover these services. And if you recall around 2009, it was just around the advent of the App Store. And the idea of consumerization of the enterprise was just emerging. And our belief was, if you could buy and have access to these great digital tools from existing trusted providers that B2B businesses look to shop from, then it will really ultimately propel cloud and and digital technologies to make more and more businesses access them. So our kind of unique thought then versus the consumer model was not everyone's going to come to an app store and download or subscribe to apps in one central place. In the B2B world, it's going to be more distributed and cultivated through trusted human relationships. So instead of building the destination marketplace, we decided to build the network that enabled others to launch marketplaces and cross-sell these SaaS solutions. So in the early days, we realized that there were quite a few verticals that were positioned as trusted providers that could sell and promote business technology. Those verticals included many of the telecoms that already had business subscribers that they could leverage to then offer productivity and security solutions. It included value-added resellers or managed service providers that were already providing technology to small businesses, as well as you know other verticals like uh, banks and financial service institutions that were providing capital and could be a trusted provider to also provide technology. In a way, being in software world, it may not be different than being in furniture world or hotel industry or insurance or banks, because each of us, you know, is a maybe, let's say, a fraction of the market, and then we are providing that item to others. However, being in digital world and software industry, it's different because then you are actually accelerating everybody else's business. It's true that everybody uses furniture, everybody uses insurance, everybody uses bank. But in a way, it's different because when you're in software and digital, you're actually accelerating others, every other industry to go faster. So the time scale is totally different when you're in digital world. And it's really accelerating according to you know Wall Street Journal. When I read it a few months ago, the report they had, digital economy is now at the comparable size, pretty close to the whole you know, U.S government kind of economy size for the U.S. economy. It still is a smaller than real estate, for example, economy, but it's getting there because it's faster growing than any other sector we have. And it's one of the top four of the big size economies we have. So in particular, when it comes to faster, 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 I hear from you that one of the main factors that actually you provide is just all of the things that you said in one way or the other translates to acceleration. It translates to you can get things done faster. How do you see that has progressed compared to maybe 10 years ago compared to today? Have you seen areas that really that acceleration 
has been super obvious to you and it's just, you know, because, you know, being in there every day is different than if you look back at 10 years ago and compare it to today. Certainly. I mean, the rapid acceleration of cloud is unprecedented in the global economy. And as you mentioned, you know, the digital economy has grown astronomically in the last decade. And that rapid acceleration was enabled by new business models that allowed digital first companies to be able to proliferate in a global manner. So as you mentioned, the acceleration and the pace of change is higher because of these enabling technologies, whether it be the hyperscalers like AWS and Azure that provided the you know, infrastructure in order for businesses of all types to scale, or whether it be commerce companies like Shopify for B2B retail or AppDirect for digital technologies, or whether it be other layers like a Stripe for payments. So all these digital services allow businesses to be able to essentially aggregate and adopt uh, services in much a faster way and really redefine the way they go to market. So you mentioned kind of the power of the digital economy. And one of the ways I like to look at what digital transformation truly means is by answering really two questions. One is what products do you want to sell? And two is what channels do you want to sell them through? And that applies to any business. But many times when I'm advising legacy you know, or pre-digital enterprise companies that may be Fortune 500s, they talk a lot about their you know, old channels. So they have sales channels or brick and mortar channels, and those can be aided by digital technologies. So CRM obviously makes your sales team more productive or you know, having an e-commerce store augments your retail experience and having a digital POS there would make it even better. But there are many other channels that exist in the digital world that can further accelerate your business, whether that's selling on an app store, having your own app store, having your own digital commerce experience, selling via you know, referral links or affiliate models. So really having the ability to be able to operate in a true digital omnichannel world really opens up your service addressable market and gives you new mechanisms to go to market in a more effective way. Similarly, if you think of you know, an old product that might have been very physical in nature, let's say it's a software company distributing a CD in a box and having to ship it, the way you architect that has completely changed to be digitally native as well. And now we're seeing many physical products, whether that be phones or televisions or routers or widgets, IoT devices that are now increasingly becoming connected and digital. So therefore, the way that businesses consume them is digital in nature. So this transformation of you know, products to digital products and channels to digital channels and enabling an underlying platform that allows you to scale seamlessly across these allows businesses to accelerate at a much more rapid pace without the legacy burden of uh, many traditional businesses. So what we've seen, particularly in the last five years, you know, accelerated by COVID, is that those businesses that had a digital platform up and running to be able to accelerate their growth were able to tremendously accelerate during the pandemic because they were able to embrace uh, digital first environments, whereas that those that didn't, you know, struggled. And a very, you know, easy and relatable experience of this is if you're a restaurant that had, uh, you know, toast at the time and were able to deliver and really stay in business, or if you were a retail store that launched a Shopify store, you could augment your business digitally. You'd probably be in business, and if not, you know, thriving and having a bigger market than you ever would have in the past. However, if you didn't have immediate access to those technologies, 
you may have fallen behind and, and really uh, been hit a lot harder. Now, we look at the SaaS market and we take it for granted like many other things, like we take a smartphone for granted, although it didn't exist 12 years ago, right? So the same with SaaS market, that was the market size. I mean, it was there 10 years ago, 12 years ago, but from market size perspective, it was very, very limited compared to today that we have a lot of, you know, SaaS companies. And then there is a, another kind of go-to-market, as you mentioned, that channels and everything, that they have not only grown the market, but also they are getting more sophisticated in aspect of going to market. How do you see, for example, from going to market, it was definitely direct. It was definitely everybody, you know, going through one channel to one maybe type of audience and selling. Now I imagine that the go-to-market, as we go further, it's getting more sophisticated, meaning it might be multi-channel, it might be even going to different type of audiences. How do you see that part evolving from your experience that companies, SaaS companies, selling direct versus indirect, going to one channel versus multi-channel, you know, those kind of dimensions that adds more kind of sophistication. So historically in the, in the you know, old software world, over 50% of, of technology was sold indirectly through channels. And in fact, companies like Cisco were built almost entirely on a, on a channel-based business. But as you know, software emerged and SaaS emerged, SaaS companies thought, hey, we can offer a freemium service that then becomes premium and people will sign onto the website. And you may not even need direct sellers, let alone an indirect channel. Companies you know, in that nature could have included DocuSign, MailChimp. You, you may have you know, included Dropbox and other you know, SaaS solutions. Now, the reality is that as they scaled um, and become prolific, adding new sales channels were critical. So, you know, first it's typically, okay, we have these freemium to premium opportunities. Let's start a direct sales force. And then, you know, after that, you know, how do we continue to accelerate beyond our sales force? Well, we can train other sales teams. So how do we leverage uh, different sales teams? And then uh, there may be models like affiliate models or other partnership models that will drive more pipeline and demand to you. And then there's other augmented services like embedded ways in app stores and others to be able to gain further channel. So what we've definitely found is that there's an evolution of how businesses evolve and how they scale to keep pace of revenue and maintain growth. And I think it's commonplace today to know that a business depending on a single channel would be limited in their ability to deliver versus being omni-channel in nature. So I definitely think that we've seen to date, you know, businesses need to pursue multiple channels beyond just a direct model. And I'd say that, you know, those businesses that scale uh, to be, you know, very, very large and go public often always embrace multiple channels. That being said, it's definitely difficult along the way to evolve your channels and a lot of experimentation and agility is needed because oftentimes you can depend on one channel partner for a strategy, think that it's going to work, but that does not necessarily work on first pace. So what we find is that uh, persistence and iteration is definitely needed when you're working with channels and opening up your sphere of how you sell. I have seen it's a different kind of topic, I would say, within the same context of SaaS companies. If I'm a SaaS founder and I want to start today, and I come to you and I have seen both groups, would you advise me to start with my product and then start building my business from there 
kind of focus on, you know, from there, what kind of problems I can solve and of course, what kind of market I can serve and everything else, but starting from the product, or would you advise me to really think through first how I wanted to sell it and what is the channel and then define it from there coming and defining everything else? Because from your perspective, maybe you have seen the challenge one way or the other and you want to tackle the biggest challenge first because, you know, that is going to be a problem in the future. If you don't solve it, the business model may not serve. I think they're dramatically intertwined. And the notion of product market fit is how you can rapidly experiment around improving your product and improving the market. On my podcast, Decoding Digital, I've hosted Eric Reese, the founder of uh, and, and uh, author of Lean Startup Methodology. And he speaks to this uh, cyclical nature of you know how you really have to rapidly iterate and fail and learn how to fail fast in order to find that product market fit. And one thing that I'd advise to any SaaS company is that really iterating to get a true product-led experience with really good net promoter score, engaged customers, and strong economics is super important before you scale. So what we've found is that it may be easy in uh, certain funding environments to take a product, start generating sales, uh, throwing a lot of burn at go-to-market, but you want to make sure that that is really efficient burn with the right unit economics to be able to optimize for the long run. So I think that there's this constant iteration of product market fit that's responsible for the best high growth, repeatable growth companies. And always looking at when you add new capabilities to enter a new vertical, how does that you know, uh, hinge on the core? And you know, one reflection I would have on a lesson learned that we've had over the decade plus, as well as other SaaS companies that I've seen, is the way you architect from the beginning really defines how seamlessly you can scale to break 100 million and beyond in, in revenue. And what we found is that those companies early on that cut corners, which is definitely a, uh, a common trade, let's say build a monolithic platform and you know to, to gain customers will kind of hard code custom uh, development into the monolithic code base. It makes it much more difficult to architecturally scale. Whereas those companies that are very disciplined about having API addressable uh, headless infrastructure with microservices and that allow developers to build on top, whether it's your own development team, whether it's your professional services team or third-party developers, those are the ones that tend to scale faster and more efficiently. So if you look at you know, Stripe, how they started you know, very small around a very repeatable use case where developer-centric or Twilio similarly, they saw you know, very rapid and scalable growth which is very different from someone who would focus on just the UX or UI of the product around an initial customer. So I definitely think that one piece of advice I would give young SaaS companies and engineering teams is really be maniacal about API addressability, documentation, and microservices to enable your product to seamlessly scale. And as you maybe define the market fit for new verticals, you can customize on top of the core platform. But if you're too intertwined and focused only on the product's fit for one customer or for one small market, the challenge can be that you make tech trade-offs that make it very difficult to scale repeatably in the later stages, and you end up having to refactor or, or sometimes even rewrite you know, your code base from scratch, which definitely slows you down. Yeah, that's great advice. Definitely, I cannot tell you how many times I have seen this, that as you said, you, you make it easier at the start but then it will cost you way more at the end. 
and then it blocks or it slows you down to scale. I, I totally agree. And that's the confusing thing with the lean startup methodology is that a lot of times, you know, Y Combinator and, and uh, you know, even Eric in the lean startup, you know, you hear these mantras around be scrappy, do things that don't scale, experiment cheaply, fake it till you make it. And I think a lot of those mantras are applicable in the sense of how do you learn how to rapidly iterate? But if you do them without strong technical understanding of the repercussions, it definitely slows you down. And I think there is a harmony where you can test and rapidly iterate and experiment and build around great customer value, but do it in a way that respects the technical architecture and scalability of your platform. And I think that's a, a, a really key consideration. And when I look at you know huge outcomes, you know what are the $10 billion, $100 billion companies? What's the difference between that and you know, great outcomes like a unicorn company that, you know, maybe slows growth, I often see it's really that technical architecture evolution. And one component of that as well is, are you dependent on a sales-led only channel or are you product-led, which enables you to more seamlessly scale across many different channels, including digital channels augmented by salespeople? So one of the key trends in SaaS today is product-led growth. It's a term that you may be familiar with. If not, I'd recommend it. And when you look at high-valued SaaS companies, typically they uh, meet or, or break the rule of 40, which is really the concept that you want to be essentially putting up 40% revenue growth and neutral, or you, know, you can burn a little bit higher if your growth is higher. And those that have really aced the rule of 40 and go at a much higher ratio with, uh, with growth to efficiency they almost all tend to be product-led and have a technical architecture that allows that seamless scale so they can more seamlessly add channels in a way that doesn't create friction. So much so that I was speaking to one of my friends at a prominent VC firm. He said that the VC firm has a thesis that they'll only invest in SaaS companies that are PLG-based or product-led based, and they'll definitely do diligence on that experience. And I think there's an evolution of what product-led means, but the way that I would define it is self-service. So it's super easy to access and subscribe to the platform initially. And then also digital first, a digital assisted scalability. So instead of needing to uh, talk to a sales rep or, or having to, you can start iterating and see quick time to value with the platform. Now that doesn't mean that salespeople aren't helpful. Salespeople are critically helpful to be consultative, to think about the right structure, to think about the way you can better adopt and get value from your platform. So I think that is also one of the misconceptions with PLG is that, okay, it's digital only, but I think, uh, you know, there's again, that harmony, but I definitely uh, am a big believer of product-led growth, driving more capital efficiency and enabling more rapid scalability. So it's definitely, again, one of those things that when you're in the infancy of your business, you want to rapidly iterate around customers, but have a, you know, a thought process in mind around how are you making it easy for them to access it through a product-led growth model? How are you making it easy for the technical architecture so you can scale much more rapidly as you're proliferating across different channels? All of these are great approaches to bring down the cost of sales, right? So at the end of the day, if a company cannot really lower the cost of sales of the products they are selling, it will limit their you know, scaling very much. Now, Product-led growth is a perfect example of that. It just helps you to really bring down the cost of sales. What else you have seen? What other characteristics you have seen 
that may bring down the cost of sales for SaaS companies from go-to-market strategies or anything else that you have seen that impacts that. So one of the, the key metrics in SaaS companies is your, your cost of customer acquisition to lifetime value and thinking monotonically on what is your cost of acquisition and always monitoring that is very important. What I found is that having a data discipline around evaluating multiple sales channels and really kind of knowing your CAC or cost of customer acquisition and living by it when you make decisions on where to invest is key. And transparently, it's easy to find somewhat blind as a CEO and not pay attention to your cost of customer acquisition on a weekly basis. I think a lot of companies that are good at this and that I borrow uh, you know, learnings from is in the DTC world where your cost of acquisition is so high and you're using digital ad channels that you're going to have real-time data sometimes by the, the day and you're going to be able to test creative. So that's kind of the taglines that work or the copy that works. And you're going to be able to rapidly iterate around that creative to understand, okay, this ad campaign is going to see you know, much more efficient acquisition costs. And it's going to proliferate across these channels, whether it be Google AdWords or LinkedIn or um, you know Facebook, and just having that real-time dashboard that DDC companies live by is something that I think B two B needs to learn a lot more from. And it's much harder for B two B because you're typically your sales cycle is longer and the deal value is higher, so you may not have as easily the ability to iterate you know on a daily basis on creative. But what I found is treating the data and the dashboarding in a way that you're looking at all your sales channels, what the cost is, what the campaigns are related to, how the campaigns are performing, how that uh, impacts pipeline, how the pipeline progresses based on those campaigns. That whole life cycle is super critical to understand how you're scaling efficiently. And to your point on how you better optimize your cost of customer acquisition, what I would say is if you have multiple channels and you're always evaluating the cost of acquisition, then you can learn how to optimize. But you need to have the data and you need to experiment with multiple channels. And one you know, real-time uh, example of this is that we found a lot of success in the early days of deploying SDRs or sales development reps that would go outbound and dial outbound for big accounts. And it definitely works for Fortune 500 targeting um, and it was effective. But as we moved into you know, commercial and mid-tier segments, the cost of deploying an SDR ended up being so high that the return uh, was not you know, that effective. However, what we learned is that there's ways to enrich the SDR experience through product-led growth and things like uh, product-qualified leads where your marketing team can determine based on how your prospects are engaging with your marketing content and then even your product trial content they can essentially infer a propensity to buy or a likelihood that a customer is ready to buy in that journey. And that justifies the SDR to follow up then versus just following up to any lead form. And that creates a much more efficient SDR team. So those are examples of having access to the data. You can always tweak and optimize and um, it allows you to be super efficient. And the thing that you know, I'd say a lot of people in enterprise will say is, well, my sales cycle, and this is honestly an excuse that I used as well, Sales cycles are, you know, a year plus. So therefore, if you're iterating on campaign, you're not going to know the outcome until a year from now. So why don't we, you know, only look at it once a quarter or only look at it, you know, once a year and reevaluate. But what I found is that waiting, it really doesn't do you any good 
because people respect what you inspect and inspecting the campaigns and iterating on it and seeing the success across different channels is what's going to make you a much more disciplined company with a better cost of acquisition. So if your sales cycle is long, you need to identify ways of looking at what are the impact in each phase. So what's going to drive a click from an ad or an impression that then is going to drive a conversion that then is going to drive engaged users that are going to interact with your marketing content. If you take just that you know, stage zero part of the funnel, even before you might be putting it into a qualified lead, you still there have a lot of room to rapidly iterate based on your spend. So I, I definitely advise you know, any SaaS leader or CEO to have real-time dashboards, whether it's in Domo or you know, another source, be iterating around that, looking at what your cost of acquisition is, questioning and inspecting the success of different campaigns, and then ultimately coming back to it tagging it and coming back to it, you know, on a, on a cycle, looking back, how did these perform based on what closed throughout the year, but not waiting the year in order to iterate on your campaigns and look at that data. You also mentioned that, you know, you have a podcast, I knew that, but I just wanted to use the opportunity to, if you could explain a bit about the audience that you have for the podcast in case, you know, our audience, anybody's interested to check it out and subscribe. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So the podcast is called Decoding Digital. You can find it on your podcast player of choice or decodingdigital.com. And the genesis behind it was that when we looked at successful digital transformations across our community or the industry, we found that all successful digital transformations came down to one person who acted as a transformation agent and had a certain set of characteristics to make that transformation successful. So while we preach that technology and multi-channel and omni-channel is really critical for a digital transformation to be successful, the biggest predictor of would the transformation be successful or not was actually the people. So we actually started a podcast in order to interview the transformation agents behind uh, some of these transformative concepts. And we've interviewed everyone from Eric Reese, as I mentioned, from Lean Startup Methodology, VCs like Brad Feld or uh, Mark Sister, um, who have seen it from the investor point of view, entrepreneurs like Aaron Levy from Box or uh, Michelle from Cloudflare and many other leading uh, SaaS CEOs um, to really get their insights and perspective on what drives transformational change. Then what we did is we realized, wow, we, we're, we're onto something because all of these leaders are highlighting that it really does come down to these characteristics that they find of transformation agents within their organizations. So we actually commissioned a research study in partnership with Gerald Kane from Boston University, who is also the author of a book called The Technology Fallacy that talked about you know, digital transformation not being just about technology, but it being about the people. But we went a layer deeper to look at what are the characteristics of these transformation agents who we call digital heroes. And what we found is that there was a shared set of characteristics that included tenacity, embracing innovation, appetite toward taking risk, strong vision, and being very visionary and really being persistent. So some of these individual characteristics we were able to quantitatively uh, support, and we put out a digital hero report uh, that you can find that really uncovers this. Now, what was interesting is that we found in order for a digital hero to thrive, it's not just about the individual, it's also about the environment that they're in. So there were also organizational factors that correlated with the individual characteristics that would drive that success. So for example, an organization needed to encourage change and risk-taking in order for the transformation agent to have uh, the backing and support to be able to test out you know, something that was new and, and digitally driven. They also needed to cultivate and be a, what, what we call the talent magnet. 
So these transformation agents, if they come into an organization and are restricted by a corporate hierarchy and limited on what they can experiment with, they're going to be rejected by the organization and, and want to leave and go do something more entrepreneurial. The organization needs to embrace and respect these innovators and give them the space that they need in order to experiment and also have the, the um, you know, recruiting engine to be able to attract, train, and retain these innovators. So those are some examples of you know, things you'll learn from uh, Decoding Digital as well as our Digital Heroes report. I also would like to ask you if you could share one of the favorite books with the audience. Uh, it's amazing that when you look back to the history of printing and books in 1500 or so, if printing was not happening, that was probably the first version of internet back then that allowed you know human being to distribute information at a much faster pace. And I read somewhere that during the first 10 years that printing was invented back then in 15th century, actually the amount of knowledge of human being was doubled in just 10 years. And then we saw the same thing over internet that when internet came, then we could double the knowledge and share more you know, information at faster. So uh, still books remain to be you know, very important in our life, even if it's everything digital, books are going digital as well and adopting and adapting the situation. So I wonder if you can share one of your favorite books with us and audience, please. So I'm going to uh, give something more off the beaten path. But in 2010, I was at the South by Southwest Conference in Austin, and there was a SaaS group at the time. It was maybe 100 SaaS CEOs that included Harley, the president of Shopify, and the CEOs of Zero and DocuSign, and it was kind of interesting because at the time these SaaS companies were so small, but you know all these people were there. And at that event, someone in the audience who had been a little bit more experienced than me, I was you know right out of college at the time. One of them recommended this book that I at the time was really hard to find. I think I had to get it used on eBay, but they do have it on Amazon today, and it's called Leading at the Speed of Growth, and it really talks about the journey from entrepreneur to CEO. And it charts out as you're scaling a business, the different traits and potential pitfalls that you'll face as a entrepreneur and as a business that allow you to identify how you can sustain your growth. And it was put out by the Kauffman Foundation in 2001. And I found that you know in all our phases of growth, it was a great tried, tested and, and timeless book to help me think through what we needed to do to evolve the business and to identify the pitfalls ahead. So for anyone uh, who's leading a SaaS business, you know, in, in a leadership role, I would definitely recommend that book. Thank you very much, Daniel. It's always great to talk to insightful and bright-minded people. I learned quite a bit and I hope audience, uh, you know, feel the same way. Thank you very much for joining us at this episode. Thank you. Appreciate it, Armin. Really, really enjoyed the time. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.